Welcome back to Fall Classic Rewind, the stories behind the World Series. We're going to be covering Game 4 of the 1979 American League Championship Series, what will ultimately be the clinching game for the Baltimore Orioles against the California Angels. We saw the Angels win in walk-off fashion in Game 3, a tremendous, exhilarating game, a wild finish, the ball popping out of Bunbury's glove, and then former Oriole Larry Harlow lining one down the left field line for Brian Downing to come home with the winning run, the crowd going wild. I mean, just on, on television... I've never really heard a crowd that loud, that enthusiastic, you know, with the season on the line. Obviously, usually a lot of times you're going to have a crowd that's nervous in those situations. But when Rod Carew hit that double, right, to the gap, line that double to the gap, the crowd just went wild. And when Earl Weaver came out to take out Dennis Martinez, you could just feel that that Angels crowd was going to will them to victory. You know, the crowds have been incredible throughout this series. Memorial Stadium, of course, with Wild Bill. The Orioles fans in Baltimore, just phenomenal. Crazy, but phenomenal. And... It's interesting. The broadcasters were reflecting like, oh, this is this has been one of with, you know, Sparky Anderson there, who's been in a thousand postseason games. Wes Parker, who's played in a bunch of postseason games and covered a bunch of postseason games. Dick Enberg, you know, a relatively young broadcaster at this point in his career, but a guy who's seen a lot of baseball. They are remarking just what a series this has been so far. And they're talking about how much good it's going to do for baseball. Look look at this amazing game. Now, I don't think this series goes down in history like, of course, Sparky Anderson's 1975 World Series against the, against the Red Sox. Well, we covered that one. We know how historic and how memorable that series was. You know, when it comes to championship series... Obviously, you have the famous Red Sox coming back against the Yankees down 3-0. We covered a great series, 1973, uh, the Mets upsetting the Reds. We think about the Mets against the Astros in 1986, and also the Red Sox versus the Angels, Uh, you know, sort of memorable championship series. Uh, This is not one that people come back to, and, and part of it might be that the Angels weren't some his, some historic team and you know obviously the Orioles it's going to be a the World Series is more memorable um, but it's just interesting of kind of in the moment the broadcasters are talking about how great this series is and maybe perhaps it's the final game it's not a dud by any stretch of the imagination just in comparison to the excitement of the previous three games it almost seems like this game is a letdown um, just because it's cl- like there are tense moments early on, but 
the Oriole, the Orioles are going to take command of this game and they're going to show that they're the better team. Uh, we're going to get into all of the reasons for that. Um, and it just kind of shows, I mean, the Orioles sort of had to reset in the seventies where, you know, from 66 to about, you could say 73 or 74, it was mainly the same guys. Obviously Frank Robinson kind of comes in and starts sort of this, this run that the Orioles go on and Earl Weaver takes over and set in 68. Uh, they had pitchers like Mike Cuellar. Uh, they have guys, they have young guys come up like Davey Johnson, who's then replaced by Bobby Gritch. You know, they go on, they go to three straight World Series. They win one in 70. They win in 66. Win a couple of nationally, sorry, American League East crowns. But then, you know, they kind of had to hit a reset button. Um, where some of those guys aged out, whether it's Boog Powell, Brooks Robinson, uh, some guys weren't panning out in the same way when you're thinking about a Don Baylor, you know, didn't really for, for the Orioles become that really, really uh, good hitter. You know, they made a trade for Reggie Jackson, uh, but he made no intention of staying in Baltimore. So they kind of needed to hit a reset button. You know, they had guys like young guys like Al Bumbry. Um, Jim Palmer, of course, was still a key part of the rotation, but Gone, like I said, when we when we began this series, gone were McNally, gone were Quayar, whole new bullpen, pretty much a whole new lineup. And yet, with Earl Weaver's brilliance and, of course, phenomenal play and phenomenal pitching defense and three-run homers, the Orioles were going to go on another run of being a great, great team. Um, it's kind of starting here in 1979 and, you know, kind of the difference, and we'll go into the difference between the Orioles and the angels. This, this episode is going to kind of be more of a celebration of this Orioles team and their greatness, but it's the pitching. I mean, that's what I really, the pitching. And then of course the, you know, the depth of the lineup, Earl Weaver with his platoon systems, of course, and the great defenders that are out there, you're going to see, you know, Brooks Robinson gone, but Doug DeSensei is going to make a, is going to show shades of Brooks Robinson in this game. But the pitching, and that was really what was shown to be the difference between the Orioles and the angels in this series, you know, for the angels, Tanana, obviously, you know, was hurt a little bit this year and Ryan are great, but beyond that, they didn't, they didn't really have guys and the bullpen just not, not effective enough. Um, kind of to a point bad. I mean, they were, they were not a team that excelled at run prevention. They could outscore you. But there's kind of an old saying, great pitching can beat great hitting, especially when it gets hot. And, you know, I mentioned Jim Palmer, Mike Flanagan put up a, a Cy Young caliber season. Dennis Martinez uh, probably had the best season to his career at this point. You know, a guy who would go on. I talked a lot about uh, Dennis Martinez yesterday. 
But the guy we're going to focus on here and is going to be someone who, when the Orioles reloaded, right? When, when they kind of made the decision that they needed to reset things and get and bring in younger players, they made a huge trade. All right. In 1976, this was a year where, you know, they had traded for Reggie Jackson and Ken Holtzman. They're trying to kind of make a go at it once again. And 76 just wasn't necessarily happening. So in the middle of that season, they make a trade with the Yankees. The Yankees who are going about to go on a World Series run are about to basically reclaim the American League East and reclaim essentially the American League for the next couple of years. They made a trade. Um, the Orioles traded away Doyle Alexander, who had become a very, very solid, reliable pitcher. Former uh, important platoon catcher Elrod Hendricks, Ken Holtzman, who had they who had they had just traded for a workhorse pitcher, Grant Jackson, a reliever, and Jimmy Freeman, who was another reliever, but not necessarily effective, but who they brought in, right? Kind of trading out the old in with young guys. So they brought in Rick Dempsey, who we've seen have huge moments in this series, going to have more, and is going to have even more great postseason heroics in his career. Tippy Martinez, who's an excellent, excellent reliever. Rudy May, who is actually back with the Yankees. We when we covered when we covered 1980, we saw him probably have the best pitching performance of any Yankee, but a solid, solid pitcher. Dave Pagan, uh, another sort of, you know, so-so reliever, but the main person they got and kind of, I think the most important player apart from Dempsey, I think Dempsey's huge, although statistically it's not going to be backed up that Rick Dempsey was the most important player gotten in that trade, but it's Scott McGregor, today's pitcher who's going to have, well, one of the games of his life here today. More on Scott McGregor after a word from our sponsor. You know, lots of cities have a special food dish that they call their own. But in Baltimore, we've got loads of foods that we're proud to eat and serve. From Federal Hill to Fells Point, from Little Italy to Canton. There are blue crabs and crab cakes. Don't forget the Old Bay seasoning. There's charcoal pit beef sandwiches. There's lake trout, which, you know, is neither from a lake or from a trout. Then for dessert, you top it all off with a burger's fudgy cookie. Mmm, all delicious Baltimore traditions. And they're going to leave you stuffed. Well, you can't find bromo seltzer anymore. Nope, your best bet for washing it all down is a Natty Bow. National Bohemian Beer. Right up there with the great Baltimore traditions. It's the official beer of the Orioles, Frank and Brooks and Earl and Boog, and the great taste of Natty Bow. Proudly served at Memorial Stadium and in Baltimore restaurants and bars. Bring home a case from your local distributor. You're going to eat all that great food? Well, you're going to need your Natty Bow. Scott McGregor uh, was born... Uh, in Inglewood, California, you know, from Los Angeles, you know, he played, um, he grew up 
with a father from the Navy who, uh, who was in the Navy. And he grew up watching Sandy Koufax and Don Drysdale. Grew up with those great, great Dodgers teams of the 60s. And grew up as someone who loved baseball. And, um, you know, he went to El Segundo High School, was a star in baseball, ending up getting drafted by the Yankees after, you know, in a year in 1972, he had consecutive no-hitters as a pitcher, you know. So he was also the, when, when he was a sophomore in 1970, right? McGregor was the cleanup hitter. He was a switch hitter hitting behind George Brett. So think about that. McGregor would get drafted by the Yankees in the first round and immediately sort of start having success, you know, was invited to major league spring training in 73 at a young age, basically at the age of 20, you know, was already up in AAA. But for some reason, you know, despite being a very effective lefty pitcher, just never got a chance to pitch at the big league level for the Yankees um, in either 74, 75, um, or 1976, kind of three years stuck. And part of it was he got up to AAA and what had been his strength, right, and what would be his strength throughout, pretty much his entire career was his command. He was exceptional at limiting walks. Very few pitchers better at limiting walks than Scott McGregor. But command got the best of him when he got to the upper minors. He really kind of struggled in, you know, he had a good start in 74, struggled in the back half and had a rough 1975. And once again, Billy Martin basically didn't call him up in 76. And McGregor was wondering, like, what basically what the heck is going to happen? Like, am I am I just never going to get a chance uh, to pitch at the big league level? But as I mentioned, 1976, he gets traded over to the Orioles. And and so think about this. McGregor is only 22. Right. So it's he was up at AAA at such a young age. And it would have been one thing if he got called up to the majors and struggled. It also would have been understandable that he's that he struggled at the big leagues at that age. But he almost got punished a little bit more for just being at AAA. Um, there's also a funny story of, recall we covered the 1973 World Series and manager Dick Williams left the, uh, left the A's and wanted to go manage the Yankees. However, Charlie O'Finley demanded of Steinbrenner that he send over Scott McGregor as a trade. Well, Steinbrenner wasn't willing to do that. Uh, so obviously the Yankees did value McGregor, but they had kind of soured on him to a degree, despite him being just 22 years old, and the Orioles jumped at the chance to get him. Uh, he made his debut in 76, um, became a full-time major leaguer in 77, Um well, actually not even necessarily a full-time major leaguer, kind of in it, you know, was mainly a bullpen guy, but became a full-time starter in 78 and really kind of took off from there. 
Um, interestingly enough, at the beginning of the 79 season, he was dealing with some, uh, with some elbow soreness, arm soreness and struggles. And, um, he actually kind of missed time to begin the year and was in a really dark place was, was abusing alcohol, marijuana, even mentioned doing some cocaine. And, um, he kind of had a, uh, he was in a crisis, both, you know, he's hurt he's dealing with 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 drugs and kind of had a crisis of faith and faith is kind of what he credits for turning his life around of really devoting himself to his faith but i think also you know for what that does on a baseball front i i'm not someone who can really comment what that does for your mind and certainly i can give credence to the peace it gives you but that peace it gives you can can really make things better when you're on the field, right? In terms of focusing on what you can control and just being calm and really kind of turned it on in the set in the 79 season pitched very well down the stretch. Um, you know, he was a guy of went 13 and six down the stretch, 174 innings completed seven games. Interestingly enough, led the American league and walks in, in fewest walks and hits per nine inning, fewest walks per nine inning at 1.2. And despite only striking out about four batters per nine innings, led the league in strikeout to walk ratio. So he was a guy that, again, that command was an elite skill. It's one thing of oftentimes we say, oh, well, this guy's got good command. No, McGregor had great command you know, didn't have a supreme fastball, had decent breaking ball and slider, had a tremendous changeup. Uh, but he was a guy who would go on, you know, for this stretch where the Orioles were really, really good, being a reliable middle of the rotation guy who had at times could pitch like an ace. And we're going to see him pitch like an ace in, tonight, in, in today's ball game. You know, he would go on in 1980 to go 20 and eight with a 3-3-2 ERA in the the year they win the World Series in 80 in 83 he's 18 and 7 with a 3-1-8 12 complete games again what you could rely on was 15 plus wins a year an ERA in the threes and he's going to give you he's probably going to give you two you know 220 maybe even more 240 innings at at like really good quality pitching Scott McGregor, a tremendous pitcher. Mike Flanagan credited him with the changeup that turned Flanagan from a really good pitcher into a Cy Young caliber pitcher. Um, McGregor, a guy who show who shows up in his career, you know, not a lot of postseason performance, you know, only essentially in the postseason twice, 79 and 83. But every time he went out there, he was great. It don't like his like his losses in the postseason were not games he pitched badly. <laughs> like I, he has like a career like one point six ERA in the playoffs, and is like a two and two record. <laughs> so, let me tell you, it's not on him. Um, but man, Scott McGregor, a guy that. The Orioles during that time period, that's what I find so fascinating. And I'll talk about it more, but I'll especially talk about it uh, if I ever covered the 1983 season, because there'll be plenty more to talk about with Scott McGregor. 
But the Orioles' brilliance during that time period was, yes, you had stars. You had Jim Palmer. You had Brooks and Frank. You had Eddie Murray, right? You know, that's the new star. And then eventually, you know, they get Cal Ripken there right at the end uh, of the this sort of great run from 66 to 83. But it's the finding ways of a Dave McNally adding in a Mike Cuellar, right? And that's kind of, we see that similar dynamic here of you got Flanagan, who's the, uh, who's the Cy Young caliber pitcher, a la Cuellar. And then McGregor, who's that other really, really good pitcher, you know, to go along that sort of, not exactly a co-ace because obviously Palmer is, is sort of filling out that role. But that guy in the middle of the rotation that, I mean, that's the advantage the Orioles had against the rest of the league is their guys who were their three or their four were just as good as your one or your two. That's great roster building. That is why the Orioles were so darn good for so darn long under Earl Weaver's stewardship. We've got our NBC broadcasters back here. We're going to hear them. Uh, we're going to hear from Wes Parker here talking about Scott McGregor, who's having a little bit of a homecoming here, right? You know, Anaheim is about 40 miles away from El Segundo, but still it's kind of like a homecoming for him. And he's going up against Chris Knapp, a guy who was part of the, you know, the very important trade uh, the angel, the angels made with the white Sox. you know, bringing in Brian Downing, bringing in Dave Frost. They sent out Bobby bonds. Uh, and Knapp had been kind of a reliable pitcher his first, his first year with the angels, but was dealing with an injury this year. Um, here's our broadcasters talking about the starting pitching matchup. And very soon we will get to this game four matchup. The calendar reads early October, but the weatherman has presented a midsummer perfect 80-degree baseball afternoon. Not a cloud in the sky over Anaheim Stadium as a sellout crowd filing in to see game four of this dramatic American League Championship Series. Hello, everyone. I'm Dick Enberg, and welcome to Anaheim Stadium. Those of you who have followed the pattern of this series, the first three games, must agree with the press from around the world covering this and the newspaper and radio television personnel who say that maybe on its way to the greatest series ever. The first three games, hard to argue. Wes Parker is with me. Wes, today, game four. The Angels still alive, but everyone, with all the excitement last night, forgets it's the Orioles that lead in the series two games to one. Well, they've still got the best chance to win it, and you've, you've got to like their chances, I'll tell you that. But we're going to see the number four pitches from both clubs today, Scott McGregor and Chris Knapp. And uh, we're going to see some good pitching from both these guys. Even though it's down to the fourth starters, Dick, uh, they're still very capable. The Baltimore pitching staff, as we know, is loaded with good starters. And McGregor will be no exception. He's a lot like the old Dave McNally type. Uh, Baltimore fans will remember him from the early 70s. He will be facing, though, a predominantly right-handed hitting lineup on the part of the Angels as they try to counter his effectiveness. Now, for the Angels, it'll be Chris Knapp going today. He's had a bad back, a herniated disc. He only had a 5-5 five and five record this year, but... 
He is 11-1 in Anaheim Stadium. Very tough in this ballpark. If he gets into any trouble at all today, I think that Dave Frost, who got knocked out in the second inning of the second game, will be pitching right behind him and would be brought in very, very quickly. We should remind you fans, Anaheim Stadium in day games, the ball carries very well. The dimensions are much, much shorter than the numbers on the outfield wall would read. We're liable to see some home runs hit today. One thing I wanted to mention before we start this game, you know, obviously game three was sort of a heartbreaking loss for the Orioles where you had it. You had the series right there. You're two outs away. And frankly, you were just a play away with that line drive to Bumbry. I mean, if that ball doesn't pop out of his glove, it's, it's not as if he did anything wrong. I've watched the play over and over again. It just pops out of his glove. It wasn't like he wasn't looking at it or anything. He makes a great read. It's it's just kind of bad luck. And but because if he catches it, they've got a double play and and they advance. And and so how do you respond? How do you respond when heartbreak happens? Right? We kind of saw how the Angels responded, right? At the beginning of game two, where you know, obviously they had the Dan Ford home run in the first inning, but then Frost just couldn't keep it together, and they basically imploded. They fought back really hard in that game, but that fight wasn't there at the beginning. They they lost that game early, and that is what can happen in a game, right? When when you you have a heartbreaking loss, you have something that happens, and then you. you how are you going to come out in that next game? And so that is what you got to be looking for here, especially from the pitching side, looking at McGregor, and then also looking at the Angels pitching, right? Of how are they going to respond? Okay, you know, they got the win, right? They avoided elimination. How are they going to respond in this scenario? Because ultimately, they're still facing elimination. The Orioles aren't. The pressure, a little more pressure on the Orioles now, right? You know, they got to get it done. But it's just one of those things uh, when we talk about sports, it's the beauty of it. You know, it's as exciting as, you know, say the NCAA tournament or, or football playoffs or like we used to have with the wild card game, a one game elimination, you know, the wild outcomes and the stress of that. I mean, we, of course, love a game seven. But I love the story of series, how things develop, what are the counter moves and all of that. I find it fascinating and really thrilling that, you know, you can carry things over, but you can also stop something. Uh, So keep that in mind as we go across in this game. And uh, now we're going to hear from the wise old man who's only 45 years old. You couldn't tell by looking at him. I mean, he sounds like he's 65, but let me tell you, Sparky, he was he was 45. It's he he was born in 1934. It's 1979. He's 45 years old. But man, even sounding old, does Sparky have a lot of energy? Love 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 sparky anderson and that's actually been one of the real joys of this series is getting to listen to sparky anderson and how much love he has for the game 
Ah, I yearn, I yearn for guys who are excited, who can, who can talk about everything that's happening in the game and certainly have criticisms and, and talk about how things can be better, but talk about it with such reverence and joy. It's been a joy to listen to Sparky Anderson and hear his thoughts heading into game four. Well, the old sage veteran skipper last night, Sparky Anderson, it was a joy for us to see that you have a lot of kid left in you. You enjoyed that game as much as any of the fans at Anaheim Stadium. Well, Dick, let me say this. I was in the 75 World Series with the Boston Red Sox when Carlton Fist hit the six home, uh, six inning, uh, six game home run that won that ball game for him. Then we went to the seventh game. But I have never in my lifetime been associated in a thing like this where you've had the Baltimore crowd that's just been ecstatic in Baltimore with Wild Bill, and then you come to Anaheim. And I have never myself ever been around professional sports where there's been this much enthusiasm. And to me, this is going to do more for baseball than that World Series of 75 did. With that background, we're ready for game four. There are a few lineup changes uh, for the teams here in game four. Uh, For the Orioles, they kind of go with their... um, their lineup against right-handed hitters, Al Bumbry leading off in center, Garcia at short, Ken Singleton, Eddie Murray, three and four, Lowenstein in left, Pat Kelly at DH, keep Pat Kelly's name in mind, Desensei at third, Billy Smith, the former Angel, is at second, and Dempsey behind the plate with McGregor on the mound. The Angels uh, do uh, change things up a little bit with a lefty on the mound, uh, Carew leading off, Lansford at third, Dan Ford in right, Baylor in left, Baylor in left field, which is interesting. Uh, Downing behind the plate, Bobby Gritch at second, former Oriole Merv Rettmond at DH, Rick Miller in center, Jim Anderson at short, and Chris Knapp on the mound. The early stages of this ball game, like the first inning, you can tell, like, I, I don't know, like having never watched Chris Knapp pitch before, I don't know if you can tell that his back is bothering him, but it certainly looks like he's compensating for it in his mechanics. Now, early on, like he misses a couple balls high, but like early on is able to locate low. The one thing that happens in the first inning is he goes to full counts on the first two batters uh, and then gives up a single to Ken Singleton and gets Eddie Murray to pop out. Um, And then in the, in the bottom of the first McGregor goes three, two on Rod Carew, but has a quick one, two, three inning uh, gets Lansford out on three pitchers and gets Dan Ford who had been the thorn in the side in the first inning. Uh, The Orioles are able to put up a zero in the first inning for the first time in this series. Dan Ford does no damage. Uh, He flies out to the track in right field. Ken Singleton runs it down in the top of the second. It's a very interesting inning where no runs score, right? And there's a hit. Pat Kelly ends up getting a hit, and he steals second base. But it is a long, long inning. You know, a seven-pitch at bat from John Lowenstein. He ends up popping out, but fouls off a bunch of pitches. Uh, Pat Kelly gets an 0-2, you know, an 0-2 single. DeSensei works a full count, uh, um, fouls off pitches, and then Billy Smith works a, works a full count. So already through two innings, right, one thing to keep in mind is while it's been zeros and not too much stress, it, it has been already like 46 pitches for Knapp, a guy who dealt with injuries this year, really struggled. And so just 
these are always things I keep in mind is it's not always just about the numbers, but it's kind of how you get there. Now it's one thing when it's Nolan Ryan throwing a lot of pitches that's expected, but for more unproven guys, it's something I really, really watch. We kind of saw it, uh, you know, it can add up and come back to haunt you in a game. Um, Bottom of the second, uh, Kiko Garcia actually ends up making like a bad error, a pretty easy ball hit by Brian Downing. But again, another relatively quick inning, um, you know, for Scott, uh, Scott, Scott McGregor puts up another zero and puts, and, and that's also the response too, is when a guy has a long inning and then the next guy has a quick inning that puts you right back out there, you don't get a chance to really recover. And I think we see that come into play. As we get to the top of the third. So leading off, Rick Dempsey, first pitch, lines one right up the middle. Rick Dempsey is going to have a game, folks. He's a guy. It's it's interesting to hear Sparky Anderson talk about him. Sparky Anderson just raving, raving about Rick Dempsey. And, and you know, of course, Sparky loves his catchers. In no way was he – I mean, there's the famous thing of – uh, during the 76 World Series, or it might have even been 75. I forget whether it was 76 or 75 when they were talking about Fisk or they were talking about uh, about Thurman Munson. might have been talking about either one of them where they said, oh, well, they're fine players, but don't do not mention them in the same breath as Johnny Bench. So obviously Rick Dempsey, no, not, not a candle to any of those guys, but Sparky knows the importance of a good catcher and Rick Dempsey's a guy who plays hard, not always going to put up the best numbers, but his job is behind the plate and what you get on offense is a bonus. Next batter, Al Bumbry puts together a great at bat, close pitches, works a walk, an eight pitch walk. And then Kiko Garcia bunts it actually to first base first base side and crew can't come up with it clean cleanly actually the important thing here remember i mentioned how hard the infield was right especially right in front of home plate ball pretty much i don't know if it bounces off the plate or right there bounces up in the air and it's just i don't know if they would have been able to make any play they might have been able to get garcia out at first but crew can't come up with the ball cleanly bases loaded middle of the lineup coming up and here's Ken Singleton, who struggled to start this series. And we believe he began the series one for eight, but he picked up some hits at the end of game at the uh at the end of uh game three. Picked up a hit already. He's seeing Nap well. And again, in many ways, he was the Orioles' best player during the regular season. And you know, after coming off of a heartbreaking loss, you want to make sure you get the job done right away, get a run in, and set your ball club up for success. That is exactly what Ken Singleton is going to do right here. Orioles couldn't ask for more than this. Bases loaded. Their best hitters are up. Singleton and Murray with a table set. He saw it until that last second. All the runners tag, and the run scores. It's 1-0 as Dempsey checks in for Baltimore. 
Markey, it looked to me the way he acted at the last minute that he really wasn't sure where that ball was until the last second. I'll tell you, Dick, he didn't. He, he had a beat on it when it first went up, and then that ball got up above those stands and got in that sun, and you're right. He lost that ball and it came back to him right at the end. That is one of the most helpless feelings you can have. Yeah, you could see it right there. He got startled when he saw where the ball was again. What happens is you see the ball as it's going up, then it gets into the sun. Suddenly you don't see it anymore, and you have to look above the sun for the ball to reemerge. And when it reemerged, he was about four feet off. That's why he suddenly staggered to his right. But he makes a good play here, and the important thing was he held the runner at second, Al Bumbrey, from tagging up. Here's another look. Oh, you can see that. Oh, you, you just hope you can find the ball. You're just searching. You, you pray that when it comes out, it'll be somewhere close to where you're standing. It's always pretty interesting in playoff games, especially those that are played on the West Coast, are, are sometimes played at weird times of day that you weren't going to normally get, right? So it's going to be an afternoon game. So the, and especially for Don Baylor, who's been DHing for most of the year and all of this series, him being out there in left field could be a little, could be a little scary out there at times, but good job by him there to find the ball. Now, with Eddie Murray coming up to the plate, it's really important to try to find a way to limit the damage here. Unfortunately, for Knapp, he's going to fall behind in the count to Eddie Murray. And like I said, I think the pitch count early on is getting to him. You're seeing mistakes being left in the middle of the zone. We kind of saw this with Tanana. He got away with it a little bit in game three, but you saw it where, okay, early on sharp hitting the corners and then, oh, the ball's getting in the middle of the zone. When the ball's in the middle of the zone to these Orioles hitters, you are in trouble. And Eddie Murray, yeah, he's not missing something in the middle of the zone too often. Well, I'll tell you, it's going to be a pleasure in the American League in the next few years to look at some of all these good young ball players, Rice and Lynn, Connie Lansford, and Eddie Murray. These guys in three, four years from now are just going to dominate the game. You've got a few over in Detroit, too. Line drive, that's a base hit into the right field corner. Ford trying to cut it off. One run scores. A long single by Murray. Two to nothing, Baltimore. Murray drives in his fifth run of this series. West, Ford made a great play on that ball, though, getting over there and holding Murray to a single on that play. You bet he did. And Eddie Murray ran the bases well. He was almost halfway to second just to see where that throw was going to go. And when he saw that it was online, he went back to first. But Ford did do a great hustling job on that play. That's going to be all for Chris Knapp. Murray, apparently, in turning first and putting on the brakes, may have turned an ankle doesn't appear to be serious but Earl Weaver's out to check on him meanwhile Jim Fregosi has signaled he wants to go to the bullpen and with left-handed hitter John Lowenstein up it'll be veteran reliever Dave LaRoche who comes in for California unfortunately that's going to do it for Chris Knapp in his postseason debut and I mean, it's just something where Fergosi just ha he has to find some way, some some way, somehow early on in this game to, to keep his team in the ballgame. And he actually is going to make a move that initially works. Uh, he's going to bring uh, lefty reliever Dave LaRoche, who 
was great in 78 and really struggled in 79. Dave LaRoche, of course, was the father of, uh, of two Major League Baseball players, Adam, LaRo- Adam and Andy LaRoche, um, who I believe were teammates on the Pirates at some point. Um, but I'm not sure if they, if they, I know they both played for the pirates. I'm never sure if they were, if they were teammates together there. Anyway, LaRoche is going to come in and funny enough, early in the game, despite LaRoche being really the only lefty in the bullpen for, um, for Jim Fergosi, Earl Weaver is going to take Lowenstein out and put in Gary Renicky. And I think it's more of right now Weaver's trying to go for that kill shot early, right? Like as in, Oh, you're going to make that move. Well, let me try to make this a three, nothing game, a four, nothing game, maybe a five, nothing game. Renicky might put one in the seats. He hit like 25 home runs, but the angels are going to have some, just a little bit of something break their way right here in this inning. Um, so that this game doesn't get out of hand immediately. Dick, this goes back to what you said when the series started. The one thing that Earl has that Jimmy doesn't have, he has the bench strength. He can switch it any time on you, and it just makes it so tough. You're handicapped over here without Aikens and without Rudy. Anderson gets one there, grips the first, double play! It's a good pitch. He jams Renicky, so he's slow getting out of the box. Now watch how fast Anderson gets the ball out of his glove. That was the key to making the double play. Well, the Orioles settle for two runs on three hits and leave one. In the middle of the third in Anaheim, it's Baltimore two. The Angels, nothing. That's a major league turn there by Bobby Gritch, one of the best to ever do it at second base. Um... I do want to reflect on the thing that uh, Sparky mentioned there of the, you know, the Angels lacking the uh, the pitching depth was kind of just a function of that's how the roster was constructed. They didn't have necessarily super talented pitchers, but they were lacking a little bit of extra firepower. Willie Akins, who we would go on to see in 1980, have a tremendous, like outstanding, some of the best postseason games you'll ever see, a real power threat. Um, he got hurt towards the end of the season. And then, of course, former uh, A's great Joe Rudy, who was struggling at this point of his career, but still a veteran presence, a guy who has, you basically, has that it factor you know, not having that veteran presence there um, is something, you know, that's missing in, in playoff games. So, you know, experience can matter and talent, of course, sometimes matters overall. Um, I do also want to go back to what was mentioned, uh, you know, I, I think it was either Dick Henberg or Wes Parker talking about how uh, the Tigers, you know, Sparky was talking about exciting players uh, coming up in the future, looking at the Orioles with Eddie Murray, uh, and you know the, the the Angels were looking like a team that was going to be able to stick around, and of course mentioned Detroit. Well, Trammell and Lou Whitaker were the young players uh, for uh, 
for Sparky Anderson's Tigers. And I wonder if they were also mentoring, I, I can't remember the, if specifically the years of Fidrich was, uh, if it was before kind of uh, he flamed out, but you know, of course he was a young, exciting pitcher uh, during that time as well. So one of the things I always harp on, right? Shut down innings, shut down innings, shut down innings. They are the thing that matters. And Scott McGregor is going to get one. You know, to lead off, Rick Miller, first pitch of the inning, rips one right up the middle. And then Jim Anderson is actually going to get in an advantage count, right? You know, he's the nine hitter. Rod Carew's on deck. And he gets, Jim Anderson gets in a 3-1 count, advantage count. But what McGregor's so good at when you're a guy who relies on changeups, relies on messing with hitters' timing, that best friend, that best friend can help you out whenever you want it. Six, four, three equals six plus four plus three equals two. And this one, well, let me tell you. It's one of the really impressive double plays that Scott McGregor gets behind him in this game. Baltimore looking for two. Rocky, you're nodding your head. Keeping the ball away just like Wes said, and Jimmy should be going to that hole with Murray holding him on first, and especially that infield as hard as it is. He has hit a ground ball and a stroke. He tried to. He tried it. Boy, that's the smart way to play. And right now, when you get the crowd behind you, the, the Orioles have just scored two runs, put them on the board, and you get a man on base, you've got to get something going. You don't want to hit into a double play here. It can just kill you. Line. Smith to short for one, and back to the first double play. Well, McGregor comes up with a double play pitch. bad luck for Anderson. He did everything that we spoke about. He tried it in the opposite field, hit the ball hard, but right at the second baseman in Baltimore turns that over. Here it is again. Watch Garcia's right foot as he slides it to the bag. I'm not sure he got a piece of it. I think he gave it a good try. <laughs> it's a phantom double play. I just realized, I think I'm getting my double plays mixed up. <laughs> McGregor induces quite a lot of them uh, in this game, three to be exact. And, uh, well, there's going to be a special one when we get to the fifth inning. Uh, I think I was just in my mind. I was confusing the one that happens in the sixth. This one is four plus six plus three equals two. Um, Garcia doing uh, the old little neighborhood play. Uh, for those of you who remember, one one that you can't really get away with now. You really got to make sure you touch the bag. It, his toe might have grazed it as he swept it across, but sort of back then it was uh, infielders didn't really complain or, or runners didn't necessarily complain because, well, they tried to do the exact same thing, mainly because they were trying to make sure they avoided contact from guys trying to take people out. Uh, the rules protect them now. Uh, keep in mind the uh, taking people out. That will play a factor later in this game. But so to the top of the fourth and pressure is yet again going to be on the angels. Um, you know, 
interestingly enough, uh, with even with a lefty on the mound, uh, Earl Weaver decides to stick with Pat Kelly. He doesn't bring in Lee May to pinch hit here. And that is because ultimately after this, it's going to be right-handed pitching from here on out. Uh, and so to lead off of an inning where you already have the lead, okay, you might take one out here from Pat Kelly, uh, who does strike out against Dave LaRoche. And then Doug DeSensei rips one right down the left field line. Interestingly enough, with a lefty on the mound, uh, Lansford's playing off the line. Now, I I'm not even sure, unless he was playing right on the line, might have been his only chance to get this ball. Um, but it allows DeSensei to go in uh, and get a double there for uh, for Doug DeSensei. Uh, Billy Smith flies out to center, and that brings up Rick Dempsey again, a guy who... You know, his overall numbers are never great, but he seems to come through at the right time. And again, Carney Lansford kind of trying, he's trying to take away the single, right? He's trying to take away the ball in the five, six hole and is essentially giving the Orioles the line here, right? You know, they're trying to make sure to cut off that one run. But I don't think it's as smart of a play as we're going to see here from Rick Dempsey. They're going to take advantage of the Angels uh, and their sort of their defensive positioning in this game. Um, and later in this game, the Orioles' defensive positioning is going to pay off in spades. So take a listen here. Rick Dempsey coming up clutch as we would kind of later learn in his career. That's just kind of his, <laughs> that's sort of his game. Dempsey, tough little out, singled and scored in the third. He's the man who started the Baltimore goal run when they scored two runs. Another base hit. Dempsey sends one where DeSensei did, and the Orioles lead three to nothing on doubles by DeSensei and Dempsey. an absolute instant replay of the ball to Sensei hit both in the exact same spot hit about just as hard Lansford also in the same spot about a, a yard fair right down the line and uh, no possible play at all for Lansford now when a third baseman's playing that far off the line he's expecting hard stuff and LaRoche is uh, either they're really reading his fastball or he's throwing uh, something that's Allowing them to get out in front, Sparky. Well, Dick, what he's doing, anytime he's playing that far off, they've went over the reports that they're going to pitch him away. And, and what he's done, he's been pitching him away, and then he gets him two strikes and he gets the ball inside. A great swing by Rick Dempsey. And you could perhaps think about it as lack of execution on the pitching side. Like, obviously, maybe LaRoche is trying to pitch away, but... If you're a lefty who's kind of a crafty lefty reliever, I, you got to think about taking away the line. I, I, I don't know. I don't know. And um, it's just one of those things where the Orioles, when they're at their best, they are taking advantage of you as often as they can. Like they just know they, they take the platoon advantage. They take the positioning advantage. They find what they, they have so many counters, right? Like that is what's so fascinating about them is there isn't just one way they do things. I mean, yes, they, the adage of pitching defense, three run homers, but it's about versatility, 
that is what makes them great. There isn't, there isn't just one way they're going to win. They can win so many different ways. And well, defense, well, that is going to be the story here when we get to the bottom of the fifth. Uh, I will, I will mention in the top of the fifth, Dave Frost actually ended up coming in to pitch in the top of the top of the fourth In the top of the fifth, Gary Renicky goes into another double play, but it's a hit and run. He hit, he hits the ball hard. He smokes the ball, right? Hits the ball hard. It's just, he lines it right at Carney Lansford and uh, Ken Singleton is hung out to dry. Ken Singleton picking up another hit uh, really, really kind of on fire at the end of this series. But bottom five is the important inning. And it, this is, this is the ball game folks right here. Fifth inning, the Orioles are up three, nothing. And so you've got, it's, it's kind of more middle bottom of the order here. Um, Brian Downing leads off. He rips one through the left side. Bobby Gritch puts together a good bet bat, rips it through the left side. And then, so first and second, okay, hey, get a ground ball here, Flanagan. Get two outs or get us an out. Try to limit damage here. With You know, if they get a run, they get a run. But, f- sorry, not Flanagan, Scott McGregor. They're kind of similar pitchers, if we're being honest here. But McGregor does something he doesn't do a lot. He walks a batter, right? So he ends up walking. Um, he ends up walking uh, Merv Rettman, who puts together a really good at bat, takes some close pitches. There are a couple pitches there that maybe could have been called strike three. And so that brings up Rick Miller. It's bases loaded, nobody out. Pitching coach goes out, tries to settle McGregor down. Think about a strategy here. And this, again, is where defensive versatility matters. Gary Renneke in left field, not the most mobile outfielder, right? You know, whether it's Kelly or or Lowenstein, they're a little bit more better at covering ground. But one thing Gary Renneke can do, he has a cannon in left field. Boy, does Gary Renneke have a cannon. And that's going to play a factor here with a catcher running at third base Rick Miller is going to hit one in the air, right? And so take a listen. What happens here? You know, a missed opportunity for the Angels that is really going to come costly when we think about the play that happens after it. That's a tremendous throw by Renicky, right on target, on the line, to the cutoff guy. And again, like I said, it's so important to get the job done immediately. 
right? And Miller there, you know, sort of early in the count, just isn't able to do the damage that's needed, right? First pitch, and you want a little bit more. Like, you want something to the gap. You you don't want – it's kind of a soft fly ball. And that's going to put pressure on Anderson, you know, a guy who we saw ground into a double play. And, you know, I I don't necessarily blame him here for the swing he makes here because he makes good contact. But defensive positioning. And, ladies and gentlemen, there's a lot of offense in this game on the Orioles' side, right? We're going to see some home runs. We're going to see a home run later. Big hits. A fantastic pitching performance by Scott McGregor. But this play right here, this is the ball game. This is the series. This is the pennant. The American League pennant. Right here, right now. And it's going to be Doug DeSensei making one of the better plays I've ever seen. Sensei, it looked like he had hurt his leg on his last hit, the top half of this inning. He saves at least two runs, possibly three, with the rally still going as he makes a good throw over there to Eddie Murray. Did you see Bobby Knopf, the coach? He's pointing fair ball right away in the other picture because he knew that ball was down the line for a double. So DeSensei, and the instincts of DeSensei, as you saw him make that backhand grab, he was fishing for the bag with his foot, tagged it while prone on the ground and completes a 5-3 inning-ending play. Baltimore, 3-0. Here's a play by Doug DeSensei that may have bailed the Orioles out. I can't think of any reason for Doug to have been playing that close to the line unless he knew ahead of time that the pitcher was going to either throw off-speed pitches or work the batter inside. Now, that's the exact opposite of what we saw the Angels doing, but that is just an incredible play and well thought out, Dick. That's the play of the series. You just can't refute that. The body presence of DeSensei, even though he had his chin in the dirt, still knowing where the bag was and hitting it with his leg and popping up and completing a 5-3 double play. The Angels' base is loaded, no one out, and failed to score. Pitching and defense again for the Baltimore Orioles. I really suggest that you go uh, click the link to watch this game. I forget, it's maybe about like um, an hour and 10, maybe an hour and 15 in or something like that. I forget the exact timestamp, but you got to see this play. I mean, uh, unbelievable, especially in considering the sensei's legs are bothering him here, right? But full extension, laying out, balls almost by him, right? Picks it with a dive. Hits third base with his foot, gets up, fires it across the diamond to get a pretty good runner. Come on. I, my jaw was on the floor watching that. You know, because it's one thing to look and see, oh, well, turn to double play and look at the box score. Oh, my God. I almost want to do the Dick Enberg voice crack of just in disbelief. What shades 
of Brooks Robinson, right? And that's something we're going to actually hear some audio from DeSensei here talking about that of, you know, when you play, you're playing the position of a legend, right? In Brooks Robinson, in that town. And some of the pressures that that can put on a player, right? And it's not an enviable position, right? Like you would think, oh, being a major leaguer, of course, you'd want to be that. But man, some of the pressure that comes along with it, replacing a legend, that's tough. But plays like that, play like that, that Doug DeSensei made, well, <laughs> that's going to, you know, that's part of the reason people think and are talking about you in the same breath as Brooks Robinson. Here's DeSensei on some of those pressures and how he deals and his mindset uh, going into it of replacing a legend like Brooks Robinson. Well, DeSensei taking over for Brooks Robinson. Obviously, there's been comparisons to the great ex-Oriole. Well, that was a Robinson-type play. Well, um, it was definitely a, a honor to take place in Brooks Robinson, but it had its, its drawbacks. You know, there was a lot of pressure. People expected me to do things better, or, or, or no matter what I did, I could not compare to what Brooks did in the past. And, and the biggest thing was was trying not to be Brooks Robinson, just be myself and establish my own identity. The people, uh, you know, naturally wanted to see Brooks, and so I was the kind of the villain, and, and it, I had to go through that, and it was difficult like that had even Brooks Robinson standing and cheering up in the Baltimore television booth. Be your own man, though. The message is there, and it's solid advice for anyone. Be your own man. Now, DeSensei did not have the career of Brooks Robinson. He was quite a player, though. <laughs> Actually, and many of his best years came playing as a, as an angel. Uh, I wonder how the feeling was for, for angels fans. And I mean, you could hear in that ending, the crowd was so loud, but it's so deflating, right? Like I was talking about what are you going to do as a ball club? Right. And I, well, I was going to say before I get to that point, how did angels fans receive Doug DeSensei? You know, as the guy they would remember as he was the guy. Ah, oh, man, he made that play. He he took that. He ro he robbed us of joy. Um, with the way he with some of the numbers he put up as an angel, I'm sure they easily forgot about it and and forgave him for that. Um, but what I was gonna say is, you know, the crowd got to the Orioles in the ninth inning last night, right? The previous game. But when you make plays like that, when you come through with the big hit, like Rick Dempsey does, and, and with the big pitch and the great defensive play, you take the crowd out of the ball game. Like th There's nothing like, of course, it, it's such a great joy if you're playing at home behind a raucous crowd coming through with a walk-off hit. It's amazing. But it's almost better and almost more satisfying. I, I don't really know. But when you can silence a road crowd, right? Like a crowd that's ready to explode and you take the air out of the stadium. 
that's a pretty special feeling too, right? They're, they're both pretty incredible. They're both pretty incredible. And talking about taking more air out of the room, right? You know, in the bottom of the six, Rod Carew, man, Rod Carew, this is the other thing that I love about going back and watching these games is getting to watch Rod Carew at, I wouldn't necessarily call it Carew's best, right? Carew's best is earlier with the Twins, but watching a Hall of Famer, like you have the experience of watching a game and you know, oh yeah, that guy's a Hall of Fame player. Look at the impact he's having on the game as a base runner, as a hitter, just the the pure the pure artistry of his ability to hit. Man, Rod Crew was incredible, but he's going to pick up a hit. And then, but again, it's just like McGregor wanted nothing to do with extended innings, and he was about working quickly. And with that great defense behind him, we're going to see it again here, yet another double play. That's what makes it so that you can complete games and work efficiently through a lineup. Scott McGregor. Scored a lot, only one earned run with this Angel Club in two starts this year. Hasn't given up a run yet. You know, Dick, I've been in that dugout long enough to know that where this series went, it's going to go like this for the next four innings. Yeah, it's a double play ball. Garcia and a double play. Even though Carew took out Billy Smith, Smith able to did he hit Billy Smith? Watch this. Look at the guts of Billy Smith. He knows he's going to get ripped, and he hangs in. Watch how Carew hits him. Boy, it's hard to hang in there when you know you're going to take a shot like that. And it's perfectly clean. Carew's just trying to keep this inning alive. Well, there's a veteran, and he's not holding back any punches. He's doing what he has to do, hoping that he can break up that double play in the truest sense of the term. But Smith hangs in there and turns two. The Orioles defense has three double plays in this game. Now that's playing tough there from Billy Smith. Rod Carew charging in right at him. I mean, we've seen some real high-level defense high-level double play, major league turns around second base in this series. It, and especially back then because the guys were coming after you, whether it was spikes up or whether it was lower in the shoulder India. So you had to be ready. You had to be quick. You had to get the throw off. Man, it's impressive. Of I will say this definitively now. The players, they are better athletes. They move faster. And in many ways, they actually are more fundamentally sound now. But it's marginal, right? It's it's marginal increases. And, and I think it's like across the league, there's more skill. I mean, back then, though, the guys, they could, st- I mean, the way they could turn double plays, the way they could throw, the way they could hit. Man, they were still special, right? Like, And that's what I'm impressed by, going back and looking. And I'm like... Yeah, no, the, the guys throw harder now. They run faster now. They're they're better athletes. But what the guys were able to do at their time, man, it was special. All right, here we go. Really, in many ways, you're up 3 nothing, right? 
at this point with with the way McGregor's throwing, you feel confident. You don't need much more. That ain't how the Orioles roll, though. If they're if there's a chance to extend and really put this one out of reach, they're gonna take it, and that's exactly what's gonna happen. Rick Dempsey, another great at bat, draws a walk against Dave Frost, and then actually Frost gets the next two guys out. You know he does have to go to full counts, but Bumbry pops out to first, gets Kiko Garcia to strike out. However, an important thing happens here. Dempsey steals second base. I keep that in mind because it makes it just so, okay, now a guy's in scoring position, and it just it sets things up just a little differently when Ken Singleton gets into the batter's box against Dave Frost. And Ken Singleton, like I said, he was the Orioles' best player throughout the regular season, had a, tr- had a just – Big, big numbers, big hits time and time again. And a guy who was unafraid of the big moment. And here he is again, finding a way to come through, extending the lead for the Orioles. Two outs. Two and one the count to Ken Singleton. Hit hard to left center field. Baylor on the run. Can't get it. It's over the fence for a ground rule double. It's four to nothing Baltimore as Singleton swinging three and one lashes an RBI double. Dick the Angels elected not to walk him and Frost made the mistake of getting the ball out over the plate to Singleton. And he's having a hot day. He just drilled that ball to left center field for an RBI. He's a strong man and you've got to try to keep that ball in tight on him. After starting the series slowly, Singleton one for eight. Since then, he is five for six. Three for three today. Yeah, and unfortunately for the Angels, the wheels, well, they're just going to come off here in this inning. You know, and, and Frost kind of, and the Angels make the right move here. You know, after that double, they intentionally walk Eddie Murray and they bring in Gary Ranicki, a guy who doesn't really hit against righties very much. You know, he's mainly going to be in there against lefties. But man, he's going to find a stroke. He's going to find a way. Been a little snake bit so far. His couple at bat, you know, the at bats he's had in the series. He's hit the ball hard, just kind of right at people. And well, he's going to be rewarded here with an opportunity. And he's going to knock Dave Frost, who in many ways was the, was the Angels' best pitcher this year, hasn't looked like it in this postseason. It's going to knock him out of the ball game. Gary Renicki, the batter, up twice. He's hit into two double plays. One, a line drive with Singleton running. Now the Orioles have a chance here with one swing to almost put it away. Four to nothing in the seventh. Big run. Hit. Singleton will score. Murray going to third. And Renicky to second will hold up. It's five to nothing, Baltimore, as Renicky delivers. Now the Orioles now, for the first time, can feel the excitement that they are very close to a World Series. They have a five-run lead, and the Angels have only nine more outs as 
The dugout looks, and it's Fragosi, they say, walking to the mound, and he'll go to the bullpen and John Montague. A rough, rough line for Dave Frost in these playoffs has really, really struggled. And, you know, is it going to end up actually after after we see this at bat here with uh, uh, with Pat Kelly? He's going to end up giving up 10 runs in just four and a third innings which is not what you want out of uh, one of your best pitchers. And, well, and the guy who comes in behind him, John Montague, he gave up the walk-off home run in game one and pretty much immediately coming in, facing Pat Kelly, falls behind 2-0, right, missing the zone. And Pat Kelly, the veteran, has been in the league a long time, not had, you know, has been a really, really good player throughout a lot of his career. But, you know, hasn't had a chance, you know, got a chance to play in a World Series when he was young, right, with the Twins. But here he is with a chance to do some damage. And boy, boy, is he going to is he going to put this game on ice <laughs> pretty much. I mean, the air was pretty much already sucked out of the building, but he's going to make sure there is nothing left with this swing right here. Now playing dime store up there on the scoreboard, five and ten. The Angels, no runs, four hits. Ball two. And the crowd, at least here in the Oriole inning, has become about as silent as we have witnessed in the two games in Anaheim. to go ahead. He did not put Lee May in for Pat Kelly. And now against the right-hander Montague. There's and the Kelly reason up. he did it was he was ahead at the time. He knew that the only people in that bullpen from then on were right-handers. So therefore, he was ahead. He was not going to take Kelly out with nobody on. He just waited. Watch him hit this ball. It's almost awesome. High fastball tailing away. He swings a lot like Willie Mays Aikens, I think, Dick. He's got that classic home run hitters cut and he knows it's gone everybody knows it's gone yeah, he went into that reggie jackson walk you know but people out there forget that they say all oh, the manager he what's he really do well that's managing he left that man in for that purpose to come down the road later on this orioles team is special man and you can hear sparky talking about it and just the the depth they have and how Earl Weaver utilizes that depth. That is what 
someone like a Sparky Anderson is always going to highlight of, you know, hey, it is the players and the players need to be celebrated. But the manager does have a job. You got to get put guys in position to succeed. And Sparky Anderson knows about more about that than uh, than most pretty much everyone else, maybe except for Earl Weaver. And um, I mean, ultimately this season is not going to lead to a world series championship for the Orioles, but they're going to be in position for it. And a lot of that has to do with Earl Weaver. And a lot of that has to do with these players and man, they are special. Um, And I'm going to continue to rave about them. And I just do want to get in a point here about the angels Disappointment the first time making the postseason, right? And they had moments, they had chances to make this series be different. Ultimately, the Orioles are better than them, right? Uh, and we're going to see that here. And boy, Scott McGregor, what a what a game! And and ultimately, that's the thing I want to hit on. It's the pitching depth, and I don't know if the Angels learned that lesson. You know, because ultimately we're going to see in the 80s, the Angels, they add on Reggie Jackson, Fred Lynn, Doug DeSensei. Um, You know, they they kind of buy up stars, right? Trying to be the Yankees of the West. Gene Autry was not afraid to spend money, but he didn't necessarily know how to add in those pitchers, right? Nolan Ryan would go on and leave. Right. And and they'd have other guys who, who would step in. But that I think oftentimes is the difference. Hitting is great. And D and, and having great defenders is great, but you need the premier pitching. And that's kind of the lesson we see with the it's kind of been the lesson of the Angels for so long. That that Angels team that won the 2002 World Series, which is by the way, one of the a great World Series. You know, they had a great lineup, but they also had, you know, a young John Lackey. Jared Washburn was a really solid pitcher. Um, you had Ortiz, or Ramon Ortiz. Was it Ramon or Russ Ortiz? I forget which I forget which one pitched on which. Uh, but then, you know, you had a bullpen of, of Percival and K-Rod. Like, right? Like, you know, that, that stuff is the stuff that matters. And you look at the Angels now, they're having a good season this year. And obviously, Otani kind of answers both 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 sides of the equation but so much of it has been ah they've been lacking the depth and the you know you've got star power but you need the depth that is what matters to winning and the orioles like this stretch of the orioles they had the star power and they had those role players and they had those other pitchers that that were going to put you in that when you put them in positions to succeed, they were going to reward you. So now the Orioles up eight, nothing. It just so much excitement, but even still Earl Weaver, he's thinking about all the ways it can go wrong, right? He can't help himself. And we'll actually hear from him after this ball game, but ninth inning, Scott McGregor on the mound does have a runner on, right? believe we're going to have Brian Downing at the plate. The guy who scored the winning run last night, but the angels 
the Angels fans, and I will say credit to these Angels fans. I mean, they showed out and they were supportive for their ball club. I mean, even still here to the end, they're they're not giving up hope until the final out. But here we go. Final up out of the game, Scott McGregor on the mound. Pretty much the game of his life. One of the best games he'll ever pitch. Well, that is until the final game of the 1983 World Series, which just might be a little more important. Um, But Scott McGregor, a guy the Orioles could turn to when the season was on the line because he was going to go out there and compete. And when he was at his best, man, he could shut down a lineup. Take a listen as the Orioles on the brink of going back to the World Series yet again with Earl Weaver. One out away from giving Earl Weaver another pennant. (laughs) Baltimore players are kind of working their way up to the front there, Dick. They're getting ready to make the charge. Brian Downing, one for three today. The last man in the way of the Orioles celebration. McGregor's thrown plenty of those. A five-hitter for Scott McGregor working on a shutout. Top-scoring team in baseball. Strike two. And now it's match point. Two strikes, two outs, ninth inning, eight to nothing, Baltimore. Just wouldn't be. He's warming up Dick for Pittsburgh. <laughs> All over. Scott McGregor, a five-hit shutout. The Baltimore Orioles are the American League champion. Just special stuff from Scott McGregor in total, total command the entire day. And the celebration is on for the Orioles. And I mean, just what a game from Scott McGregor. And of course, the great defense, Doug DeSensei. We'll hear from him. I mean, it's a team. I find it interesting in baseball, anytime you clinch, anytime you advance in a series, whether it's just a wild card game, baseball always. They've celebrated popping champagne, no matter what. I find it interesting in, in like in, in in other sports. I you know I just we just watched the NBA uh, basketball. I was paying very much very close attention. I kind of fell in love with the Denver Nuggets over the past couple of years, and it was gratifying to see them uh, finally win a championship with their team back. But the NBA, they don't do the popping of champagne after advancing in rounds. They they kind of wait just until the finals. Uh, but baseball, it, it's kind of an interesting perspective. They go and celebrate each step of the way. And I think part of that is because there's 162. You know, it's a it, – baseball is such a grind, man. And bas- basketball and hockey are grinds. There, there's no doubt about that. But, but baseball, man, they do celebrate advancing every step of the way. Um, 
it's kind of a, they have a party. I, I, uh, it's interesting to me. I, I, it's a, it, it's kind of crazy. Um, but you see it here. We're going to, we're going to, we're going to go into the clubhouse. First, we're going to hear from the man in charge, Earl Weaver. And boy, you can just see how happy he is and, and how much he loves. I mean, you wouldn't know it watching the games, right? Because he's going around pacing. He goes and hides. You, you would think he just hates it. But it, that's just knowing himself, right? And and knowing he he's, he's, again, he can't help think about the worst possibility. But he goes, and man, he lo- you can tell he loves his team and he loves his players and they love to play for him, right? You can tell that from there. And this is a celebration for them. Take a listen to Earl Weaver talking about (laughs) the joys and the stresses of managing and winning at the big league level. Let's go to Wes Parker and Skipper Earl Weaver. Thank you very much, Earl. I've got Earl Weaver in a mad clubhouse as usual. Earl, your first minute since 1971. How does it feel? Very good, very good. What a job they did. All year long, they just didn't quit. They made believers out of everybody. Did you have any idea in spring training that this club was going to be as good as it's turned out to be? Well, 102 and then three out of four in the playoffs. That's what we were working for. That's what we put it together for, and they did the rest. Earl, it's kind of ironic. You're going to be going to the World Series playing the Pittsburgh Pirates, who you lost to in 1971. Any ideas about the rematch? What do you think about the rematch? We're going to talk to Jim Russo and Will. They've been with him, and uh, I hope that uh, we can win it in seven this time. That was a great series. One of the best ball clubs you've ever coached? Uh, It's got to go up there, the number of victories and the stats. They broke the home run record, and we led the American League in pitching, and I don't know what else they could accomplish other than what they've accomplished up to this point. We saw you pacing back and forth throughout this series. Earl, is that just superstition, or were you really in agony? No, no, I'm a nervous fella. I get nervous opening day, and I won't quit now until the world series over how many day in and day out you got to do that in april may june anytime how many cigarettes do you think you smoke during the games in four games well uh, believe it or not it wouldn't be that many but enough okay. enough that i shouldn't be doing it i know that earl best of luck to you in the world series thanks what a manager earl weaver it is a shame for him he just in how he's remembered that he wasn't able to get those other world series wins other than 1970 and you know 66 and 83 the Orioles win you know the Orioles are remembered as kind of this so-called dynasty but Earl Weaver wasn't able to get it done but man he went up against tough teams the 69 Mets they were a team of destiny and the 71 Pirates that was a great series and 79 also another great series you're right there you get to game sevens it's tough uh, but we'll have plenty to say about the 79 World Series. Let's hear a little bit more from the guys who got it done. So we're going to hear from Doug DeSensei. Then we're going to hear from Pat Kelly and the hero of today's game, Scott McGregor. The hometown kid, as in the the L.A. kid, comes in, wins in California. The guy who, 1979 was a pivotal year in his life. I mentioned it before. He was, there was a lot of things going around. He was struggling with his own health, struggling with things off the field, but he, in many ways, found it and turned his life around. And 
I think there were a lot of Orioles players who faith was really important to them. Pat Kelly, a guy who stuck around in the big leagues for a long, long time. And that faith and the work, right? The combination of the two is so important. It, it, you know, people can find different ways and find different inspirations to what drives them. And it is really cool to see guys who stick with it succeed. And so take a listen here, Doug DeSensei, and then Pat Kelly and Scott McGregor and the excitement in that locker room for the Orioles heading back to the World Series for this group, for these players. It's the first time for most of them. It's really, really cool. Dick, an entirely different celebration going on inside the clubhouse here. As you can see, Doug Doug DeSensei is my guest. And uh, Doug, you made one super play. I think it turned this game around, perhaps the series. You were playing close to the line. Why? Well, in that situation, uh, you know, you don't want to give Jimmy Anderson an extra base hit. It, it, his best thing right then is if he gets a base hit, he's going to, you know, you're going to get one run. But if he gets a ball down the line and gets by me, there's two and sets up for more runs. And at the time to score, I wasn't going to give him that. I was going to give him a base hit down the line. But let me tell you, he, you know, he hit the ball right over the bat. He hit it on the button. I was just lucky to get that ball. This is your first playoff or a World Series or any kind of a championship? That's right. I, I was close once, but we're there now, and I just thank God, really. What a feeling, huh? It's, it's it's unbelievable. This is a great club, best club I've ever played for, and I tell you, they're just super, and they're worthy of the, the, to be where we're at right now. Okay, Pat, nothing like winning. Congratulations on a super season. Good luck to you in the World Series. Thank you, Wes. Thank you. All right, let's talk to Scott McGregor. You, Scotty. Scotty, the winning pitcher in today's game, the number four starter for the Orioles, if you can believe it. I bet you can't believe that yourself, Scott. Uh, I'm just glad to be here. We got, you know, a lot of good pitching on the ball, Colton. I think you can put in one of our guys out there, and they're going to do a good job. Dennis, a good job last night. I just got eight runs today. You tried to keep the ball down most of the game. You got three excellent double plays, didn't you? Well, those are the pitcher's best friend. You know, you can put a couple of those together, especially one with the bases loaded and one out. That's, you know, that really helped. That's the way I pitch. I got to keep the ball down, and they uh, got the ground balls. Scott, it was such a big game, and the Angels looked like they might be establishing some momentum yesterday with that big win, the crowd behind them. Did you have any trouble sleeping last night and thinking about this start today? Oh, definitely. <laughs> I slept in about 2,000 positions last night. <laughs> It's tough, you know, but I knew that there'd be plenty of adrenaline flowing today to keep me going. I'll crash on the plane back home. Did it Did it seem kind of strange to you after growing up in Los Angeles and El Segundo, just about 30, 40 miles from here, to be pitching in a really your home park and having so many people rooting against you? Well, I know there's about 30 people up there that were for me, and I can feel it. You know, I, I'm so glad to be able to do it here. It's just a dream come true to be able to pitch in your hometown and to clinch it to go to the World Series. It's okay, the Pittsburgh Pirates are waiting for you, but for now, just enjoy it. Thanks a lot, Scott. Okay, Wes, thank you. That'll do it here. The Orioles taking the 1979 American League Championship Series three day, three games to one over the Angels. Game four in truly dominant fashion behind a just great game from Scott McGregor. Many contributions throughout the lineup. You know, really, I mean, like, Eddie Murray was great in this series. So was Ken Singleton. Rick Dempsey was fantastic. Clutch hits from Pat Kelly, John Lowenstein, Gary Renicky coming through at times. Great defense from DeSensei. All in all, this is a team to be reckoned with. 
And the Angels, they put up a tough fight. They really did. They got beat hard here in Game 4. But man, they battled throughout this series. The Orioles were just better. But facing them, they've got a tough matchup in the Pittsburgh Pirates. Like, and well, we're going to have a lot to say about the Pittsburgh Pirates. We're going to get to meet them. Going to cover the NLCS. They have a, quite a series. You know, another another one where, well, it's going to be a sweep for the Pirates. But, boy, it's going to be a lot of work to get there. Going to be a lot of work to get there. And, you know, I've fallen in love with this Orioles team. I know I'm going to fall in love. Well, their family. <laughs> The 1979 Pirates. That is what we move on to next. Game one of the 79 NLCS. The Pirates and the Reds. The rivals. The rivals, really, kind of throughout this decade. The teams who... uh, Really, when you're looking for who, who kind of dominated the decades, a lot of people say the Reds. You can make an argument for the Pirates. You can make an argument for the Pirates, for who dominated the 70s. Anyway, I'll be so excited to cover that for y'all. Catch you next time on Fall Classic Rewind.